Welcome to the New School at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a conversation with Zen priest Shota Harada Roshi, his colleague and translator Priscilla Daiichi Storant, and Michael Lerner as they discuss Zen and the art of dying. Shota Harada Roshi Daiichi, also known as Chisan, welcome back to the New School. Thank you. I was reflecting, I think I met you both in 1993 when my wife Cheryl and I came to Japan on a U.S.-Japan fellowship. And that began a, a friendship that has lasted for 22 years. One of the early manifestations was when uh, our son Josh went to stay at your monastery in Sogenji, and he came back playing blues harmonica. <laughs> I don't think he did a spot of meditation, but he learned some blues harmonica. <laughs> And after that, you began to come regularly here. And um, then uh, you began to think about uh, setting up a monastery in the United States. And I suggested, I think some others did, that you place it on Whidbey Island. And now you have a real monastery on Whidbey. And also monasteries around the world. When you speak, Roshi, um, my experience is that you speak not from theory or philosophy, but from, from knowing. Your story, just for those who don't know it uh, briefly, is that you were born in 1940 in Japan, which was a very difficult period of time, into a uh, priest's family, a temple priest and his wife. You were their third child and second son. The temple was poor and times were hard and there was no extra money. And you had no desire to be a, a Buddhist priest. You were fascinated by rockets and wanted to become a pilot. By the time you were a teenager, you were thinking of becoming a psychologist. And then one day your father asked you, you to deliver something for him to Yoshinji, the headquarters of his family temple. And I want to read uh, something that you wrote about that trip. Uh, it was early, so the buses were crowded. I had to push through his pa this, this packed crowd of people to board the bus all the way to the back. As I did so, all of a sudden, I came, uh, I came upon someone who struck me as most unusual. He had a mysterious presence. There was something luminous about him. There he was, an old priest in robes, wearing glasses and reading a book. Yet he glowed with a type of light. In comparison, the people around him seemed so weighed down by their thoughts and cares. I stood in the aisle, a youth who didn't like Buddhism and lived in a temple only because of the circumstances of his birth, and yet I was deeply moved by this intelligent-looking man who seemed so deep and so still, who radiated such brightness of spirit. Why did he seem so different from everyone else? I'd never met a person like this before. I couldn't figure out what was so inspiring. There I was, having been brought up in a way I didn't want to continue, thinking that temples and priests were not really appealing, when all of a sudden this mysterious person appears with all his great depth, who was obviously a priest. Why should he choose this way of expressing himself? I was so intrigued by this man and the questions he was presenting to me by his whole presence that when the priest got off, I followed him. 
It turned out this person was Yamada Muman on his way to Rayum, a small Buddhist temple in Myoshinji. I followed him right to the gate and saw him go in. Now, Yamada uh, Muman Roshi uh, was a, a very great Zen uh, teacher that both Daichi Chisan and Roshi studied with. So they were fellow monks studying uh, with uh, uh, Muman Roshi. Um, and so there's much more to the story about how Roshi came to be uh, a, Zen, uh, a Zen priest. Um, but suffice it to say that it was not an easy path, and it included a long period of camping in the mountains between Hiroshima and Shiman Prefecture. Um, and uh, and uh, just actually quite extraordinary hardships. There was one period when Roshi, uh, on his way to join uh, Muman Roshi's temple, took the traditional path of walking to the temple, except that it had been snowing heavily, and he was walking through high snow for days without any, with almost nothing, in order to get there. So there was a tremendous, um, a tremendous effort was made. A tremendous effort was made. And so Roshi finally did become uh, a Zen priest and, and was asked to take over the temple of Sogenji by his teacher, Muman Roshi. And at Sogenji, he became known for being willing to take students from all over the world, but to give them a very disciplined uh, training in Zen. Is that a fair summary? Yeah, all right. Um, and so um, through this wonderful friendship, with, which evolved with uh, Roshi and Shisan, um, I've been able to start doing one of the New School spiritual biographies, which uh, we've done several versions of here, and we've done some long recordings up uh, on Whidbey Island, which will come out soon. And so this is a continuation of that spiritual biography process. Um, so that's by way of introduction. Roshi, I know for a fact that there are people in the audience today who... Um, who have cancers from which they expect they will die at some point. But I also realize that, that all of us um, are dying. When Yvonne Rand talks about the loss of memory, uh, it's a form of dying. Yeah. So, and then I was thinking and talking with you earlier about how Death may come upon any of us unprepared. We may have a heart attack. We may have a stroke. What is the most important thing for a person to remember if they feel death coming upon them, either suddenly or more quietly? <laughs> He said that people, we all think 
because we've been with it for a long time, this body is who we are. We're very familiar with that way of thinking of ourselves. It's very common probably for everybody. He said, but this is true that we are also this body, but it's not all that we are. We are given birth from the karmic affiliation of our mother and father, and we have this physical body, but we are kind of lopsided in our view that everything about us is only about our body. So therefore, the question of then what? Then what are we? If we aren't just our body, then what else are we? And where, where did that come from? If we know that our body is something that we have because we were born from the karmic inflation of our parents, we can see that we are having this body as a borrowed object, that with a physical death we will return. But if we are a borrowed object of a body, then what is it that is also us? In the Commonweal Cancer Help Program, these week-long retreats, um, we have alumni groups that meet regularly. And it's turned out that one of the absolutely central issues for the alumni groups is the issue of grief. That a, a grief that as people die in the groups uh, and uh, as people confront the possibility of their own death, uh, that grief has has just emerged as a central issue. And um, so how would Roshi suggest that people live with the experience of grief when it becomes so overwhelming? I know. Michael Sangha. Jibun no ishukan no gan no. Ima. She said, there is right now at Sogenji, at our monastery, one of the Roshi students, who a woman who um, has cancer, and she has been a student of his for more than 10 years, at which time, 10 years ago, she was given lay ordination, and a request from her because she really wanted to use her life for her practice and her training. Her mother and her sister had also died of cancer. And she felt very much that it was important for her to do this. And she was lay ordained in the monastery in Europe. And since that time, she has always identified herself as a person of training. And she is now living at Sogenji. She came last year in October. This year in June, she began to hurt in her lower back and she went to the doctor and um, had examinations and it was found that she had a metastasis in her bone and the bone was ready to break any moment from the fragility that it had um taken on from that cancer and other places as well. And 
in fact, there were many other parts of her body that were also um, metastasized too. And she was given a, I don't know what the word is in English, a, she was said to have about three months left to live. So she, and from 10 years ago, as she had been um, doing a practice with the Roshi where they have a one-to-one -one encounter about our clear nature, with our clear nature, and he had, knowing her situation, especially since she's been coming to Sogenji from a year, he would always say to her, our body is our borrowed and in fact, it is not everything of who we are. What you need to see is what is it? From where does this body come? What is it that is not borrowed? And he would always encourage her and um, guide her with this question. He has, to all the students, not only to her, but also to her, said that you are also a physical body, but where is your true master? Your body now can see and hear and walk and move, but that possibility and capability of your body will not be with you forever. And what is it that this true master is, that which gives your body that motion, that which gives your body that perception, what is that? And he constantly refers to that question with her. Yes, sir. Again and again, you are now walking and talking and doing things. You can see from your eyes, hear from your ears. He said, but what is it that is seeing with those eyes? What is it that is hearing with those ears? What is it that is speaking with that mouth? Your mouth is a tool. Your eyes are tools. And your ears are tools. What is it that is using those tools? From where does that movement and activity of those eyes and ears and limbs come forth? What is that? We have all kinds of thoughts. And we can act from those thoughts with our, with our limbs and our senses. We can see things and produce things. And these are all working now. But when, when we die, we won't be able to use any of our limbs and any of our senses. So at that time, where is that which was using those limbs and senses? What is that? And this is, he said, this is only a metaphor, but for example, if you have a, a car, there is a driver of the car, and then there is the car's motion and the car's action, but without a driver, that car won't move. And it's the same with your body. Your body has senses, it has limbs, but what is it that is the driver behind what uses those limbs and those senses? He says to her, you have all of these capabilities now, seeing, hearing, feeling, tasting, touching. You can walk and you can, you can move, but all of these things, what are they being done by? These are all parts of a physical body. What is it that moves 
these activities? What is it that makes it possible for them to do that? So he says to her, here you are, and you are able to move your body. You can go to the zendo, you can go to the dining room, you can do so many different things. He said, but when it comes time that this physical body that you are right now, that you are moving around in, when it can no longer do all those things, when it is not able to be moving, where is that? which is now moving those things. Where do you find that? What is that? He asks this to everybody, but especially to Seiki, he is giving this as, as, as intensely as um, he's talking about now. And he brings her and other people of training as well, but to the seeing that what is moving her is the whole universe that her being is the entire universe it's not that she's not her body but that is a piece of this universe that is what is giving her the life energy for her to move all those parts that he's talking about that although she can she has all these parts this physical body is also who we are that which is moving through those is the universe, because the universe is who she also is. And in this way, he teaches her over and over again to be able to see that while the physical body is what's dying, that's not the whole picture of what she is. Her true master is the universe. So, and then he says to her, wouldn't you like to meet this universe who you really are? If you really want to meet this universe not just your body, who you are, but this whole universe who, you, who is living through these parts that your body is, and not that they are only parts, but that that's not the whole picture. He said, wouldn't you like to? And encourages her to say yes, of course. And, and then when she does, he says, well, if you want to encounter that, sit zazen. Sit zazen and know that state of mind where you are no longer thinking thoughts, no longer keeping track of a body. When you are no longer with those thoughts and that sense of being a body, right there already is your being the universe. With a koan, with breathing, he then leads her, leads us into the practice in such a way that we are able to use these things to sit to a depth of samadhi where there is no longer any keeping track of our physical body, any more thinking about our thoughts, that we are deeply absorbed in that. And in that way, we are able to realize this experience, which is beyond our thinking, beyond our physical body. And know it not just from thinking about it or reading about it, but actually experiencing it. Because when all of those other things have been been let go of, or they're not what we're operating under, then what's left there of who we are is this universe, and we can experience it directly, not with a thoughtful, intended, deciding, I'm now going to experience this, but when our thoughts and our sense of our physical body has been let go of, naturally, that understanding and that experience is where we are. This is just like when the Buddha 
went first for six years into very severe ascetic training on the mountain. And he sat there and worked hard for those six years, but then he realized that it was not this ascetic training that was the point, that that wasn't the way to experience what he had found important in his life and come there to realize. He came down from the Dantokusen Mountains to the Bodhi tree. And there, after those six years of very stern experience, he, in a huge, abundant, wide-open state of mind, sat. And then on the morning of December 8th, he looked at the morning star and suddenly he knows, he just, he just was sure that he was the morning star. And he jumped up and down in wonder. And as anyone does when they realize this hugeness of the true nature, which we actually are, unbelievable. How could we have known? Because we were so busy thinking that we were still our small body. But this huge mind that we are actually living from was touched directly by the Buddha. In this way, we have other Zen masters. When it was Master Kyogen, it occurred to him, it happened to him, when a piece of tile hit a bamboo. At that sound, he had the exact same realization as the Buddha, that that's who he was. And also, for Hakuin Zenji, famous Zen master in Japan, when he heard the sound of the morning bell, he was astonished to realize that he was that very sound, and he was sounding. And in this way, we come to know through our experience, not our mental activity, what we are that is doing, what it is that is using those ears, eyes, and all of our senses and limbs. We directly perceive that through our knowing by experiencing it, that this is how huge and how actual the state of our great mind is. He said, it's impossible to try to experience a self which is not our typical and usual version of who we think we are. But when we can forget all that and move into that deep absorption beyond an idea of a self, a small self, and a restricted self, then we are able to enter this knowing and being of the state of mind which we are that is not not just our physical body. And always Roshi is giving this guidance to his students, but for this woman, Seiki, who is um, only being given three months to live, it's much more intensely important for her to get on the job, be life on the line, and get this understood, get this experienced. And so at the beginning, she would come in as usual as everyone else to a, a daily meeting with the Roshi to exchange and, and be this state of mind together. And then when her leg, which is so fragile and liable to break any time, made it so that she couldn't move around so much. Then the Roshi goes to her quarters where she's staying and he gives her that one-to-one -one teaching every single day, two times to, to work with her on this, on this part of the path in her most precious moments now. She's in great pain and she has been given the appropriate 
um, medicine to relieve that pain, but it makes her very fuzzy and foggy and unclear in her concentration, so she chooses not to take that because it's not the way she wants to do her zazen. So she has been continually... Um, delicately balancing that path with her pain and her sitting. And three days before the Roshi came here, she's sitting all the time and her her whole being is centered around when the Roshi comes for his teachings with her, um, she was able to have a huge opening and actually experience, as she said herself, herself, her small self was no longer present. And he said, she said that, and he could also see it and he heard it and he saw it in her face that she was completely free of any of that small self-lingering whatsoever. She has a 21-year-old daughter, and when her daughter found out her mother's critical condition, she wanted to come see her, and her mother said no and turned her down. Not very happy to hear that was her daughter, but her mother said, I want to finish my life out as a person of training, and I need every single minute to be able to realize the state of mind which is most important to me before I die. And um, asked her daughter not to come. Her daughter is coming, but um, now that she has in a certain way realized it, she realized how important that meeting was too. But at that time, and she has kept that um, that way of doing this, of saying, I want to live this life as a person of training. Most important to me is that I realize this true nature before I die. <coughs> and because the Roshi was coming here and wouldn't be there to inspire her daily life at Sogenji, she is now in our Red Cross hospital in the palliative care unit while we're away. She'll come back to Sogenji when Roshi returns. While Roshi has been doing a session in Whidbey Island at Tahoma Monastery, we received phone call after phone call because she was becoming very angry and violent with all of her caregivers, which are the members of the Sangha of Sogenji, and even the nurses at the Red Cross Hospital, yelling at them and vicious with them. And... Um, behaving that way. So people were saying, what are we going to do about this? Because the person who she listens to most directly is the Roshi. So Roshi sent her a message via me and said to her, people of training die quietly. Please stop making such a big fuss and being so agitated. <laughs> and immediately, immediately, she was more at peace. I can imagine people sitting here thinking to themselves, you know what, I'm not going to succeed in having a lifelong practice like this. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to succeed in meditating my way into, you know, uh, a state. And moreover, in her case, even with all her practice, she was getting very agitated. Yes, yes. That's so it's a, it's, a, it's a delicate teaching because on the one hand, it takes a tremendous amount of work to get there, and on the other hand, even having done all that work, she found herself in a deeply agitated place. You aren't the only one noticing that. Okay. <laughs> right. So I come back to the question that I asked at the start, which is, um, given that we're human, given that most of us are not going to achieve uh, high levels of contemplative peace in the face of death, in the reality of being 
ordinary human beings, what helps when we're facing death? He said, although it is a fact that Seiki dropped her body and was able to realize her original nature, this is not saying that she has realized how to always be in that state of mind. He said, we have a physical body. Even if we know that experience of not being that physical body, we all have tremendous amounts of conditioning and habits and things that don't simply disappear because we have touched and experienced ourselves, which is bigger than that. He said, and that is why the Buddha himself said when he was um, going into nirvana at 80 years of age, he said that until now his nirvana has always been the nirvana of having a body. And when his disciples began to weep and he said, stop that, he said, I've been here with my body in nirvana all this time and now I'm going to go into nirvana with no body. And he said, this will be a, a, a different, different way of being. And he was also known as the one who had realized great alignment. This is what he's talking about, that for us to be able to be very insecure and uneasy is relieved when we can once at least even know our truest nature. That may help us not to see clearly who we actually are, but that does not resolve the fact that we are still a physical body that has a lot of things that needs aligning. So we need to let go of a lot of that existential angst that we have because we don't know who we actually are. But when we've touched that once, then we can use that largesse to be able to see how to align our body and all those conditioning things and the things that we still have to work out from having a physical body need to still be worked out. You're listening to a conversation with Shota Harada Roshi and Michael Lerner. And that's why when Seiki, even after having that depth of experience, was being vicious and mean to the nurses and the people who were taking care of her, and she had said to him that she wants to live and finish her life like a person of training, if that's what you want to do like a person of training, then be quiet about it. I mean, become more quiet and don't be so agitated. Telling her to work on that alignment, telling her to realize that this is an important part of being a person of training always that she just can't stop doing that and that she has to look at this carefully and that's what she heard mm. you know I was reflecting on all the different ways of dying you know? and uh, I remember my father was fond of uh, a Dylan Thomas uh, poem that goes uh, do not go gentle into that good night rage rage against the dying of the light you know and I think of uh, Kazantzakis, the end of his book, uh, where uh, the protagonist, uh, what is it, just ends with a kind of a shout. And uh, the idea is that he wanted to live so fully that when death came, it, there were only ashes left. You know? wow. And um, I just think of, um, in other words, we're talking about Zen and the art of dying, and it seems to me there's this space that surrounds that, that acknowledges, um, 
and, and we were talking with Roshi about this earlier, that the dharma that each person has about their unique particular death, if they constrain it by trying to think, oh, I should die a good Buddhist death, oh, I should do it this way, mm -hmm. I'm a failure if I don't do it this mm -hmm. way. And yet they may have a very different dharma about their death. And, and Roshi was saying um, that it was particularly important to ask people to inquire into what their beliefs are about what happens after death. Mm -hmm. not, not necessarily what happens, but their beliefs about it. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think the final thing I'd say is that um, I mentioned that I was, was reading in the Gurdjieff work, and, uh, and Gurdjieff's view was that, it, that the way to, the way that a soul could survive death it wasn't automatic. You didn't automatically survive death. Was if you made contact with that eternal dimension, mm. and it was only if you strived to, if you strove to make contact with, I think it's strove, uh, to make contact with that dimension, which the personality had to do by collaborating with the soul. And the soul, in turn, had to awaken to the purusha, to the eye of God. So it was this three-part mm -hmm. process by which the personality seeking to connect with the soul enabled the soul to have the nourishment to do the work to. So I'm just thinking of all these different dimensions. Said it's not about a long-term training that we have to trudge through and somehow do it, and then maybe before we die we'll break through. He said the certain issue here of great importance is deep faith and then a knowing. And that that definite knowing, that's what's important. He said it doesn't matter if it's some kind of idea that it is our true nature or even what Gurdjieff was talking about, what he's, he, which he understands. He said that what's important is that if it's an idea we often hear about that the light of God comes and pulls us through a tunnel, if you really believe that and that, that you really believe that you can experience it and that it's experienceable and that that, that is what it is for you, then that is what is the most important thing. That that deep belief and that sureness that you are definitely um, headed for that and wanting to do that, that's what's important. He said, then for somebody who has that sense of the importance of it and their death is approaching, they don't feel like they have to do this for days and for, for years and years and years. That will take them right to it as if you're walking through a door. And it's that deep knowing and that deep faith that is important. It doesn't the, the, as we were saying before, people have different ideas of what's going to happen to them after their death. Those ideas vary. But what is important about that whole subject is the deep certainty you have and the faith you have that, that enables you to realize that and to move through death in a way of having known that. That's really helpful. So, one of the things that, one of the first things that you did up at Tahoma was to create a Zen hospice there. 
And there's an extraordinary physician, Ann Kutcher, and we did a spiritual biography with Ann as well, um, who, who uh, uh, runs the uh, Enso House. And, um, and I've heard you say, Chisan, I haven't actually heard Roshi say it directly, but I've heard you say that we were talking about dying and you made a remark, as I remember, that you know, that's what people do in Zen training. They, they, they come to learn to die, basically. Yeah. And so um, I'm holding, perhaps imperfectly, that for Roshi and for you, that part of the reason to have a hospice there mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, is that, first of all, there's the opportunity that people have who may have had no training at all uh, in, the, in the crisis or the moment of the end of life mm -hmm. to find this, even if they've never trained for that at all, that there's that opportunity. Yeah. And secondly, that the monks in some way... Uh, are training to get beyond personality, which involves dying to a great dimension of what they see themselves being. Um, and that therefore it's particularly important that they train by being part of the hospice. Absolutely. Now, now let me just add one thing. Mm -hmm. Because I, I said this uh, in a previous um, uh, spiritual biography I was doing with somebody. Um, I find that it's one thing to be truly present for somebody in the dying process. But uh, we were actually talking with, actually we were, the, the conversation was with B.J. Miller, who's the head of the Zen Hospice in San Francisco. And, uh, and Steve Heilich, who's a colleague of ours, who was also on the board of Zen Hospice, was there. And the, the point was that if I'm dying and I am sitting and somebody is sitting with me and I know that they're not really there for my dying, they're there for their spiritual practice, right? I don't really want that person around if, you know... <laughs> Do you know what I mean by that? Absolutely. Okay. Mm -hmm. So it seems to me there's a subtlety here that, yes, the person may come to great realizations in the dying process, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and yes, if the true spirit of the student mm -hmm. is to be fully present for that, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. then that, that's truly useful. But there is this shadow, which actually at Zen Hospice in San Francisco they're aware of, mm -hmm of people who kind of feed on the dying of other people in a way that is hard for the dying people and seems to me totally mm -hmm. at variance with what you're actually trying to get at. Absolutely. Yeah. Michael Sangane, no Ansan, Subarashi Ishaga, The Roshi, when he sends off his disciples from Japan to Enso House, he always says, you are not going there to take care of somebody else. You are the one dying in that bed. And you have to know that. You're being, you're being given care. And if you slip away from that and make it an objective process, then that's not what you're going for. So he's, and they, that's not just one time before they go. He's, he really drums, he's very, very, um, he's, 
he drums that into them very, very clearly in many different ways. This is one of them. I mean, this reflects the conversation we were having earlier, that um, which is the double-edged nature of quote being on a spiritual path, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and um, and my own struggles with what that means because in my own life I've found it I feel much more grounded if I accept both the light and the darkness within me woven together with no pretense of either being enlightened or even anticipating being enlightened. I just feel much more comfortable, much more grounded being a human being living with the weave of darkness and light in my life and trying to steer to do as little harm as I can mm-hmm. and as much be as useful as I can. Mm-hmm. And so there's for me the tension uh, between self-acceptance of all of the parts of us mm-hmm. and the part of us that, at least for some of us, that does seek to move toward the light or to move toward the truth. Um, but without that overlay of um, almost false consciousness mm-hmm. that comes with um, the pretense of being more than we are. Mm-hmm. And I struggle with that. And I mean, I know that I'm particularly sensitive to that issue, so I'm sure if, if I were more enlightened, I'd be easier on people who are carrying that pretense. But, <laughs> you know, it, it's a part of myself that I, maybe it's because I, Carry it as a shadow that I can't see. Who knows? But in any case, that's the. Michael Sangane, Sakini Doshi to Hanashi Satoki ni Yuta no wa. Mawadashi ga Shigoshi o sudatete chokusetsu sate sanjiyogonen sanjiyogonen. Roshi's um, disciple went to Enso House and was taking care of a patient who was dying. And when he came back to the monastery in Sogenji, he said that he had this experience where he realized that a person wasn't filling a space, that space is. And it wasn't until he had been with a person who died and all the family when the person died was there and everything stopped and everybody just didn't do anything that he felt this so directly. And this was for him a deep awakening. And what Roshi is pointing out in answer to your question is that that space, there's no place in it for a person who is being self-consciously aware of themselves as a person of practice or a person who is not knowing practice. When that space happens, he said, space happening in this room right now, that space happening when someone believes that they're going to encounter the, the, the light of God, when that is the truth of the experience, then that space is what happens, not a person with an awareness of themselves being a person of practice. And it's the same with, with Seiki. When we first heard the um, fact that the, that the diagnosis was so serious for Seiki, and Roshi said to me, um, we'll, we'll take care of her. She doesn't want to go back to Latvia, we'll take care of her. So Genji, I said, we can't do that. I was completely against it, completely. We don't have any tools, we don't know how to do this. He said, we'll figure it out as we go along. And in fact, it has been a whole change of atmosphere for the temple. 
Everybody has joined in to take care of her. Everybody in some way carrying her someplace in her wheelchair. The women in the Sangha have taken care of her 24 hours a day, a shift of all day, a shift of all night. And the whole place has become much more in space. Because that intensity of what she has brought to the whole of training for everybody has brought that same that same hugeness to that feeling of taking care of her and of the sangha with their training and and encouraged and intensified everybody's training and it's not because it's about them being people of training it's because there's a spaciousness in that that um Roshi had a feeling that's how it would happen, which is why he encouraged me to, that we should do this anyway. And he said he thought it would happen because he's because he's aware of this possibility and it did happen. Then that feeling of space, when that happens, that's what we learn from. And when our younger student who learned that that person's dying, that that was space, he said that was a, a deep experience, that was a true experience. And what he saw then was something which deeply touched his um, true nature and showed him something that wasn't in form but was in space and this is what he's talking about can't be known by holding on to an idea of oneself as a person of training Roshi I want to ask you a question I've never asked you before um, uh, you describe in your uh, biographical writings and we've talked about it um, a moment when you were meditating alone near Hiroshima, um, a moment when, uh, when, when things shifted in your practice. And then you went back into the training and things deepened. Um, I think the question I want to ask you is whether in the many years since then you, you reached a point, I don't know whether you call it of enlightenment or, or of knowing or something. Actually, I'd love to know the word that Roshi uses. Um, that then became a steady state that didn't change or whether there is a continuous evolution of the state from which you work. He said that that instant, there's no before and no after about it, happened. And at that instant, he understood how to receive and how to proceed. And that receiving and proceeding was accompanied with a huge gratitude, an enormous gratitude. And since that time, that which came through in that moment also guides him in seeing how to accept and how to proceed. But it's not the same as that experience the very first time when the whole thing kind of shot into clarity for him that this is how it was. But now he still gets... Um, further and further in knowing how he is able to see clearer and clearer how to accept what comes according to various karmic affiliations which come into his life and from that how to proceed from those to go forward. Those things are ongoingly happening. This is what you're asking. Mm -hmm. right? yeah. 
And so he said that this is, this is how it worked. The one time he kind of saw the direction that he had to go in. And from then on, it's always been seeing how to go in that direction. Mm-hmm. And Shisan, let me ask you the same question. Uh, what has your experience been of what you have experienced and, and received? Or, or was, was there a similar moment for you? There was a moment for me in the similar um, path, which is that there is a coming to know in that moment that what it is that you are entrusting to. Mm-hmm. You experience what it is that is being entrusted to. I couldn't explain it in words, but from then on, it is about entrusting to that mm-hmm. and knowing that that will, that, that when one entrusts, when you can remember to entrust, when, when one truly entrusts that you are able to know what is, what is, what is to be done, what is going on, what is to be answered, and that remembering to do that entrusting and remembering how to do that entrusting was instilled. But then, the same way the Rosh said, my lessons are, of course, not his lessons, but it's the same process of following that knowing to entrust by having by having experienced what it is that um, is giving me my life energy and what is to be entrusted to. When did that happen for you? That would happen during my training, my earlier training in Kobe, yeah. Is our true nature, once realized and experienced, the same as the Western idea of the soul? This is um, very important to understand is a culturally contained question. And, and not only culturally, but linguistically, because what does a soul mean? Roshi luckily says to, to us what he thinks a soul means, because that needs a defining to, for this question to be of the person who's asking to, to be able. So he's saying, luckily, for him, that what he knows of, and he said this from what he knows of as a soul, is something which goes from one being and then into another new body or into some other um, other form. And he said that this is not Buddha nature. If, if for example, he didn't say this, but if, for example, when we die, this, this form is left, but our soul goes into a, a new version or a new something else, that's not Buddha nature. Buddha nature is what... Um, precedes all of that, from what all of that comes forth. The, um, he said that it is only called Buddha nature because it was the Buddha who first realized how to teach about it so well. So it was called Buddha nature. But this is a nature, this is, a, this is a, an existence which is what brings everything forth into creation, not something which is, which is what he just described his idea of a soul as. And it, hasn't, it isn't possible to name it. And because it can't be named, it happens to be called Buddha nature. But it hasn't got a particular particular activity or particular identity or quality in the same way that he figures the word for soul does. It, has the, it is more precedes all of that. Yeah, I think that's a beautiful answer and a, a beautiful question. And I would just add to the question that the, the concept, the Western concept of soul has many different meanings. Yeah, and um, so, for example, in, in the Alice Bailey's work, 
the, which draws on the Hindu tradition and so on. The soul has different, there's a lower soul and a higher soul, and the higher soul, you know, with its access to the Atman, is much closer to Buddha nature, whereas the lower soul is much more the personality dimension that may be transferred from one to another. So there are many, many versions of soul, and it's a very confusing word in the West as well as everything. So it's, you know, you know. Here's a wonderful question that I'm sure more than one person thought about. What about the grief of the daughter whose mother, Saki, in the story would not see her? I know she later came to see her, but the point is, in the, uh, the, the way I take the question is, how did Roshi hold the mother's request not to have, or the mother's decision not to have the daughter come? Mm-hmm. From the point of view of the teaching, would one accept that, or would one say, you know, this may create a tremendous amount of suffering? I'll let him answer, and if he doesn't, I'll tell you what he said at the time. Okay. Okay. <laughs> It was the person, the mother, who was determined to do her training even more highly considering that than her seeing her own daughter, and that really kind of surprised the Roshi. And so he was, from the beginning, planning to say, further down the line, how about if we reconsider this? Mm. That was his response to it. Because he knows how powerful his word is with her. Mm-hmm. And that he understood also that she wanted to break through before she died, no matter what. So she, he understood that, but he also understood the deep feeling of the daughter and how hurt she must be. But then there was this little, um, not, not minor at all, little, little part that was saying, but if my daughter comes... I'll get back into my mother's deep feelings for her, and that will um, distract me from my training. Mm-hmm. So my, I'm here as a person of practice, but if my daughter comes and I lose track of that and become a, a loving mother who can't stand the fact that she won't see her daughter anymore, I won't be able to keep my practice straight. Mm-hmm. And she felt that so deeply, and the Roshi could see that. And in, in certain ways it's value, but in certain ways it's mistakenness. So he was just waiting, and he was just, just about to say, Maybe it's about time when she said, I'll see her now. Oh. And the daughter, and the daughter said, oh, I can't go see her. We, we said it to the daughter, writing to Latvia and Russia and saying these things on email, which she wasn't doing. And the daughter said, oh, no, I can't go. She told me not to come. Mm. So we had to have a precise letter from her mother to her saying that she wanted her to come. And then she was in tears of joy. So happy to be coming. You know, for me, one of the things about this story is these questions can't be answered in the abstract. It has everything to do with knowing in depth the mother, the story with the daughter, what their relationship has been, you know, what it means to her. I mean, for me, one of the key freedoms in dying ought to be that you should be able to decide who you want to see and who you don't want to see, and that a true friend protects you from those you don't want to see, as, who may feel very strongly that they should be there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But if somebody can't die with a choice of who is present and who is not, 
What are we? Mm. You know, um, my friend and colleague Francis Weller, who co-leads the Cancer Help Program and has this, this renewed book coming out on grief, when we sit together in the evening on death and dying on the Cancer Help Program and people talk about memorials, and he says, you know, a lot of memorials say we're going to celebrate the life of so-and-so. And he said, you know, you can celebrate the life, but first, let, let people grieve for you. That's you know, that, That's that you deserve to be grieved. Yeah. And that to create the space for that grief uh, is a greater service than jumping prematurely to a celebration of life that seeks to deny the grief. It's beautiful. Yeah. It so, makes so much sense. Mm -hmm. I think I'll ask a last question um, that uh, relates to Yvonne's beautiful evocation of what it's like to live with memory loss. And, um, and I experience memory loss. And... Um, and memory loss is epidemic uh, in, at least in the West, mm -hmm. probably everywhere. And, um, and so what I want to bring in this, at this moment, California is about to join Washington and Oregon and some other states in compassion and dying, right to die. And I know from an early conversation with Roshi that this was something that he had quite strong views on. Um, and, uh, um, and I watched so many versions of this. Like my wife Charlotte and I have an agreement that um, if either of us decides that it's time to go, the other will help them. It's a deep commitment. Mm -hmm. And um, we have two friends who absolutely knew, they had agreements with their doctors and everything else, that when they were ready to go, they'd get the help they needed to get out. But then their memories declined and they forgot Wait, they forgot who the doctors were? That, no, they forgot their commitment to themselves that they were going to know when the time was to leave. Like a Beckett And so, as a result, they are both living on in these very diminished manifestations when they fully intended, and these were extraordinary people. They didn't write it down. They wrote it, I mean, they knew, their spouses knew, everybody knew, but then they forgot their intention, right? So the broad question I have is coming back to the strong view that Roshi described when we did the thing at the Universal Unitarian Church, what, 10 years ago, something like that, that this was not the right thing to do. Uh, I'm curious whether, and I would respect it, whether he holds exactly the same view now or whether he has reflected further on it. Wonderful question. Yeah. Thank you. Ima wa kino mikamai California mo Washington to Oregon shu wa ano... Anakushi ni taesuru 
否定論はこれは今も変わりませんこれは当然ですこれは He said he hasn't changed, but he has a new view on it. A new view on it. A new view on it. He said that no matter what, it's a very narrow view if we think about people ending their lives before they're over, in, in some cases, naturally. And he said that if you look at the universe, it takes so much. Of time and energy and things happening to make one human being happen. One human being coming into being is such a huge event. And it's not us who did that huge event, it's the universe. And so, why would we think that it's up to us to put an ending to that event? He said, for him, that isn't, it can't be seen. He can't see it that way. It doesn't make any sense to him that way. For him, it really, to think that there's somebody, a person, That can take a huge universe's manifestation into a physical body and make a decision about that. It doesn't. It it、um, doesn't work for him. You can't. You can't see it that way. And、um, he's not necessarily saying people other people shouldn't, but and which is a little different from before. But he's saying that it's not like that. It's not how it is. He said instead. He said this. This. Coming together of all of the different causes and effects it takes to create a human being is so huge that we are in a place in the world now, we've lost track of how to take care of each other. He said, instead of making it okay for anybody to just go do that, we have to see how we can possibly help each other so that we don't need to do that. If people feel they want to end their lives, It's because there's something going on that、um, makes them not want to be alive. And so it's up to people, other human beings. He said in the olden days in, in Japan, people would really treasure and cherish the elders and the older people and give them everything they needed from, because their wisdom was so important. Having lived for such a long time, they knew so much. So everyone would back them up and support them and give everything they had for them. But nowadays, people are so divided and isolated, they haven't got a sense of the whole of the society of the old people and their great wisdom and don't support them. So, what he would say is, along with saying he doesn't think that's a, the best way to go about things, he would say that we need to look at how things are being done, that people are going to. Feel more and more like that's what they want to do, which shows a lack of our ability to go beyond this isolation and thinking of each other as small individual things and get a larger picture, a larger whole view of human beings and how their best way to live together is.、Mm, it's beautiful. Wait, here's something else. He said, one, one example. That we could look at is that just on the outskirts of Hamburg in Germany, there's a new apartment building where they are purposely putting together very old people and young people and that making sure that they're in contact with each other so that they can support each other in the various ways the wisdom of the old and the, the helpful energy of the younger ones. And that's who would move in there. So it's, you know, it's a little artificial perhaps, but this is an attempt to bring what he's talking about back into activity. It means that's a very good way of going about it. Shoda Harada Roshi Daichi,、um, thank you for the extraordinary work that you do and this amazing partnership that you have. And、um, 
It is such an honor for us at Commonweal that you come to visit. And it is an honor to spend time with you upon Whitby. And I wish you both many, many years of health and uh, to continue this great ancient teaching that you embody. Thank you for being with us at the new school. Roshi said he has to also say that this is his favorite place to come. <laughs> he looks so forward to coming here. All he gets, ever gets to see is the walls of the monastery. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, and he said, so when he comes here, and he, and he said, and he is without any wisdom, because that's all he ever gets to see. And when he comes here, he can drink of Michael's wisdom oh. and have a whole <laughs> new world open to him. And so he really loves to come here. So thank you very much. Oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you all for coming. Uh, please feel free. Roshi has a little time if you want to say hello to him and have a greeting. You've been listening to a conversation with Shoto Harada Roshi and Michael Lerner. Thank you for joining us at the New School at Commonweal. The New School at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio engineer is Ken Adams. And our theme music is by Suzanne Chiani. Please visit our website at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on Facebook. Facebook. 